analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Overcast gray day here in Kamloops. We've got a packed show ahead. We will discuss federal politics with Kamloops MP Kathy McLeod, her thoughts on possibly facing Terry Lake and more. Then a first-of-its-kind conference is tackling the very serious issue of mental health challenges for our first responders. We'll dive into that. And, of course, we're also going to break down at length last night's by-election results in Nanaimo, what happened with the winning candidate, NDP's Sheila Malcolmson, a little later in the show. But first up, Kamloops North BC Liberal MLA Peter Millibar joins us. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Shane. Good to be on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Okay, man, you are no stranger to running campaigns, uh, civic, uh, and now at the provincial level, uh, you've got a good head for strategy. Uh, your thoughts on, on how things unfolded in Nanaimo? What, uh, what went right for your party and what went wrong? You know, I think a lot went right. Uh, we, we gained our, our vote by about 9% over the last election. I think, you know, uh, we did just what everything you could do to uh, to really try to generate. And, and we had a stellar candidate. Tony is just a first-class guy and a, a huge community booster for Nanaimo. Um, you know, the NDP, everyone knows, are very well organized. When you're, you're talking about a riding they felt for the better part of 50 years, um, they, to their credit, tapped into uh, that support base and that volunteer base and made sure that they didn't take it for granted. So, you know, I, I think we did everything we could do, and what we needed was the NDP to maybe take it a, a bit of a night off, and they didn't. I was caught by Tony Harris's uh, comments. Uh, I caught him on an interview last night on one of the TV stations, and he mentioned about how he was working for Nanaimo and really focused on local Nanaimo issues, and that's where he was kind of spending his time and his energy, and that's what he wanted to do. And and to some degree, fair enough and, and good on him. But I wonder how much of, and we've talked about it in the build-up to the, to the, the by-election, that it's local issues that dominate in a by-election like this. But I wonder how much of the provincial issue of the government was at risk of falling in a strong NDP riding that kind of played in and swamped over what would have been maybe a focus on some local Nanaimo issues. Would you agree with that or no? Um, you know, I, I was in Nanaimo two, three times and, and uh, over the course of from summer all the way through when, when Tony first announced to, uh, to even campaigning for him. And, and that didn't seem to be the underlying, overlying uh, uh, feel in Nanaimo. I think in Nanaimo people were very much focused on what was going on locally. Um, I think Tony's right about that, and, and um, you know, I, we obviously understood the ramifications, and I think that's the ramifications is what helped to motivate uh, the NDP to make sure uh, locally that they uh, they had their support out and identified and, and uh, out. And, and, you know, the fact that we went up by 9% would indicate we did a very good job of, of identifying our, our base. We were phoning, we were door-knocking like never before, and, and we made sure we were getting them uh, out as well. And, and uh, probably the biggest story is the, the absolute collapse of the Green Party and and you know they can spin it however they want but the reality is I, I think people are having a very tough time uh, discerning the difference between the Green Party and the NDP they've voted 100% of the time with them so far and uh, I think that's starting to show now in, in how people's voting patterns are going to be moving forward. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. I mean, I mean, again, it's one by-election, uh, but if we get a provincial election that is framed as a neck-and-neck -neck race between John Horgan and Andrew Wilkinson, and it becomes okay, you know, we either have to defend the NDP government from one side of the spectrum or push the Liberals over top on the other side of the spectrum, uh, my assumption would be, based on what we saw in Nanaimo, that Andrew Weaver's party might take it on the chin, which I, I think, from his perspective, should be a little concerning. 
Well, I, I would think so. I mean, all the marketing in the world, uh, you know, last election we kept hearing about this great uh, breakthrough of the Greens because they jumped to, you know, 18, 20% provincially. Uh, the reality was, other than the three ridings that they won in, um, one was a held riding, um, you know, they, they continually came in third, I think, just about everywhere across the province as they traditionally have. So um, only in Canada, I guess, is uh, still coming in third considered a breakthrough. And I think what's happened now is, uh, you know, two years now of continual voting of, of the Greens with the NDP has has made people realize, well, why why am I voting for a third party if they're going to do lockstep what this other party's doing? Uh, we might as well uh, uh, vote for more traditional lines, and I, I think that's what was reflected in Nanaimo. Um, you know, there was obviously a, a very telling uh, result in the in the PR referendum that sent people aren't necessarily uh, warm to uh, the idea of nonstop coalition government as well. So I think those factors, uh, you know, Mr. Weaver and the rest of his uh, MLAs are going to have to have a hard talk with their their base because I would suggest that their base, despite the the you know the the rosy uh, view, Mr. Weaver's trying to paint on it right now. I, I would say the base is getting very worried that their identity is getting swept away by continually supporting LNG and uh, party with Site C and, and speculation tax now and everything else. Uh, let's talk about your party's identity. There's been some chatter out there that uh, that some of the baggage from, from the last 16 years uh, continues to kind of stick and drag the party down. There needs to be some fresh blood, some fresh ideas. What's your take on that? You know, I, I think that gets overstated a bit. Uh, there's a lot of experience in that room. There's uh, there's a lot of new people in that room. There's 10 of us that just got elected in 2017. I believe there's 15 that got elected in, in 2013. So out of uh, 42, that's 25 of us that are all, you know, five, six years in or less. Um, of course, there's a bit of experience, but if you look at the candidates we ran in the last election as well, we did run diversity and youth, and unfortunately, we ran them in very hard-to-win ridings, and, and I think we as a party need to, to recognize that and, and make sure that uh, we are continually trying to reinvigorate, but, uh, um, you know, it's not something that we're, we're avoiding. It's something we embrace and something that we, we definitely try and strive to. You look at Tony Harris, he's 35 with a young family, uh, another third uh, baby on the way at the beginning of March here. Um, so, you know, it's definitely that uh, we do have that ability to, to attract those younger entrepreneurial spirit people that really does speak to what our core of our party is. Um, we just need to uh, get them into writings and, and get them uh, into a winnable situation. But what about some of the stuff that, that seems to stick to the party? I mean, to some degree, money laundering, to some degree, uh, the Craig James fiasco, things like that. Is there a sense that you got to shed some of the old blood to kind of fully kind of release some of that stuff so that it doesn't really stick to the Liberals or no? Well, you know, you know, it's interesting with the, with everything going on in the legislature right now. Let, let's be very clear. This is about staff, uh, for the most part. This isn't about MLAs. Uh, in 2012, it was our party that brought in the reforms that would show uh, MLAs' expenses online, and people can go and look up all of my receipts and all of my expenses, uh, uh, you know, as soon as they get uh, paid out. And that was our party that brought that in for all the MLAs. What was missed in this was the legislative staff. Uh, we've acknowledged that, that obviously uh, it's, it's worse than we thought it would be, uh, whether or not they're criminal or not, uh, is, is somewhat irrelevant in the court of public opinion. I think everyone agrees that a lot of these charges, um, within policy or not, uh, should not be happening. And so we need to address that. We need to clean that up. That's what we're calling for to move forward. And it takes all parties to move this forward. You, you know, you, the premier on one hand is, is running around telling everyone, there's nothing I can do as premier, yet he's still trying to put it all at our feet when we were in power. 
well, which is it, Mr. Premier? Are you, are you actually unable to unilaterally do this as the Premier? And if so, um, how is it suddenly magically our fault for the last 16 years? This isn't about pointing fault. This is about, obviously, um, there it needs to be a tightening of regulation. There needs to be a tightening of rules of what's acceptable for an expense or not an expense and make it very clear to the public and make better transparency. That's what we're calling for. We wish the NDP would get on board with us and, and try to make that happen because it does take all parties to do that. Mr. Horgan was there, Mr. Farnworth was there. There's lots of people that have been there for lots of years, um, and, and it's time that we move forward and take this next step like we did in 2012, uh, addressing the MLA uh, expenses. Uh, just to change topics here before we're out of time, uh, I know you haven't read the Parliamentary Budget Officer's report on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, but in summary, uh, he assesses it as, a, as the Trudeau government paying a billion dollars over uh, uh, sort of what they should have paid. Uh, but more concerning for me in there is this prediction of $9 billion construction cost and an assessment from the PBO that if construction doesn't start in sort of a timely manner, uh, construction cost increases will drive uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline into the, into the stratosphere. Uh, potentially impacting any ability for Canadian taxpayers to get money back on a potential resale. I mean, there's a lot going on in the pipeline. I don't know you're tied into that. Does, does, does hearing that cause you a little bit of worry? Does it kind of ping your radar or no? I, I think it's the, the underlying message that concerns me the most out of all of this. And, and I was in Prince George last week for a natural resource uh, conference, and we were hearing that from, from oil. We were hearing this from gas. We were hearing it from mining. We heard it from forestry. Um, their capital, uh, forget about trying to attract capital into British Columbia right now with this climate of uh, you have a permit, you don't have a permit, um, uh, you know, uncertainty as to how you should actually proceed forward difference between hereditary versus elected leadership and, and who should you really be consulting with or not. Um, all of this confusion that has been, uh, uh, you know, generated uh, is really scaring the capital markets, and it's not just scaring them right now when you're talking to people about intern in, in, incoming investment. There's a lot of people, especially in the lower mainland, are looking at ways to move their capital out of the province right now. And, um, you know, we're just starting to see uh, the, the troubling signs of that. Uh, reports like this don't help uh, that narrative that, uh, you know, if, if things don't get moving very quickly, uh, the uncertainty and, and uh, the questions will start to add increased costs of, of a very large scale when you're talking billions uh, of dollars. And so uh, I think that's troubling sign across a wide range of specter, uh, sectors, not just uh, when it comes to the Kinder Morgan project. Peter, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Great. Thank you. That's Camel's North MLA Peter Millibar discussing uh, the aftermath of the Nanaimo by-election result and a little touching on the Trans Mountain Pipeline issue uh, that uh, bubbled up this morning as well. We'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll dive into the very serious issue of our first responders and their mental health. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Your opinion, call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome. We're a day removed from a day where we spend focusing on mental health issues with Bell Let's Talk, kicking over social media yesterday. Uh, a lot of uh, encouraging growth and support on that front. And uh, one of the places where mental health issues uh, need to be addressed is among our first responders. Real pleasure to be joined on the program by the Vice President of the BC Professional Firefighters Association, Steve Freena. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. 
Um, a very important issue, I think. Uh, first responders, be they firefighters, uh, you know, ambulance, paramedics, whomever, uh, you guys deal with uh, a range of stuff that can be extremely traumatic. Um, in a culture where over the last decade or so, I think we made a lot of headway, but there's this, there was a, a time when uh, things were very held inside. We didn't talk about it a whole lot, especially us guys. Uh, and we made a lot of growth there, but still a lot of, of room for improvement. Um, there's going to be a conference dedicated to discussing and dealing with this issue of first responders and mental health. Tell me a little bit about that. That conference is going on right now. And so we've got leadership from all over British Columbia, from all of the first responder organizations. We've got, like you said, police, fire, paramedics, uh, dispatchers, Canada Border Services. We've got mental health professionals, uh, fire chiefs, you know, chief of police or chief of paramedics from uh, for Canada. And they're all gathered here to basically acknowledge that stigma still exists. Uh, you mentioned that stoic work culture that we've been battling against for years. We're starting to you know, get chinks in the armor there. We're starting to break that down. And I think this is kind of like the pivotal moment where we bring all of the resources that we developed from that steering committee, the BC First Responder Steering Committee, and we're putting it together so that people can implement it in their workplace. How do we tackle the issue on the, obviously, you know, shedding the stigma, pulling it out into the light, uh, getting the message out there that people aren't alone, that there's resources, there's help, they can talk to people, all that kind of stuff is very, very important. But um, how do we take it to the next level? Is it building resources within the workplace? Uh, how do we deal with it, especially for you guys on the front lines, be it, again, paramedics, police, fire, whatever? Yeah, I think, you know, the hashtag that we built out, that anti-stigma campaign, which is internally focused at first responders, that share it, don't wear it piece, that's where we have to start. We have to make, we have to normalize the fact that it's okay to reach out for help. There's no shame. It's actually, it's a courageous and strong move to put your hand up to say 25 years of accumulative trauma is going to, it's taken its toll and I need to talk to somebody. And having those occupationally aware clinicians, the registered clinical counselors, the registered psychologists, ready to, to receive us and understand the complexity of that. You know, everyone has life stress, but you couple that with the trauma that we see on a daily basis, it is a complex onion that needs to be peeled off, you know, very carefully. So we have to have those resources that understand our culture, you know, understand our language and understand what we're exposed to. How do you build that in? Like, for example, in a firefighting outfit, uh, do you have um, some kind of workplace uh, resource compensation ability to say, okay, listen, um, I, I just need to take some time and, and talk to somebody, uh, so the ability to take a week to do that, or whatever the deal is. Is, is that part of the equation here that, that's missing or no? You, you know, it's a multi-pronged approach, and it, and it starts with awareness. So being aware that this job can actually affect you and acknowledging that. You mentioned that suck it up buttercup kind of mentality that we used to have we have to kind of break that down and say you know what this is going to affect you this job changes you doesn't matter who you are you, you come you come out a different person on the other end but you have to have that education component you have to have those post-critical incident stress diffusings where you normalize the stress reaction you provide resources self-care and we also have peer support layered into that where we have peers with that lived experience that we can lean on and get connected and refer on to resources and then of course you mentioned the actual time off, and I think that's where we're still struggling with that. We we're a, we're a helper culture. We we don't put our hand up. You know, we we work through the pain, and uh, I think we got to acknowledge that piece is that it's okay to take a week off for self care if you're you're feeling overloaded. And I use this analogy all the time: is we get we get these backpacks when we get tired, 
And every time we go to a traumatic call, you put a rock in the backpack. And it can get really heavy after 20, 25 years. Hell, it could get heavy after 10 years if you're working on the downtown east side. And be, to be able to recognize that and be able to put it down and get some help, I think that's really, really critical. Are you seeing um, progress in the last, I don't know, say decade or so? I mean, I think there has been generally, uh, you would know more about the first responders angle than I would. Uh, are we seeing movement? And if so, you know, to what degree and to what more degree do we need to see movement in the future? Oh, I think there's a massive cultural shift happening, but we still have a long way to go. We still have, the stigma still exists there, but we're building the resources, we're building the help, and it's very permission-giving. When you have someone that's been, you know, fighting that fight for 25 years and they put up their hand and they get help and they get better, that provides hope and for other people and provides permission for other people to put their hands up. So we have these champions within our organizations that are getting help and they're, you know, they're change agents. They're, they're making a difference by, you know, saying, hey, it's, I'm, I'm struggling, but I got help and look at me. It's a story of hope and growth. And that's what we're trying to build on. And that's where the, I think the culture is changing. How important is it to not only to have this inaugural conference, but uh, I assume the goal is to, to have it again annually every year after this. How important will this conference play a role in, in helping out uh, not only in the awareness front, but, but creating some push to, to, keep, uh, to keep moving this ball forward? Oh, I, this, is, this, is, this is the leading edge. Um, I would love to see this happen every year. This is the culmination of years of work from that steering committee to put all those resources together. And now we're bringing all the leadership together to go back to the organizations with the how to do it. Everyone knows there's a problem. They just don't know where to start because it is a big animal. And I think that's where this conference is really going to be great. It's going to be the impetus for change. There's going to be carry the resources. This is how you implement them into your big, small organization. And, and we're going to support you through this whole process. And WorkSafe BC has been instrumental in driving this, along with all the first responder organizations. And the government, as well, has been very supportive. Excellent. Good stuff. Uh, Steve, thanks for taking some time to join us. Again, uh, it's a really, really important topic, and uh, not only for first responders, but uh, for, for all of us. Our workplace here was recently touched by um, a mental health-related issue that resulted in a tragic outcome. So uh, we feel the pain that, uh, that uh, I'm sure exists in your industry as well. For sure. I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. All right. That's Steve Farina. He's the uh, vice president of the BC Professional Firefighters Association. We'll take a quick break and jump back into politics on the other side. Federal this time as Kathy McLeod joins us. Local News Now. Radio NL. 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL. 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Pleasure to be joined this morning by the Kamloops Thompson Caribou's Conservative Member of Parliament, Kathy McLeod. Kathy, good morning. Good morning. Um, so, uh, a lot of rumors around town. I'm sure you've heard them that uh, Terry Lake, former mayor, former MLA, former cabinet minister, provincially uh, was considering a run for the Liberals. He hasn't said a firm yes yet, but he has officially now confirmed that he is indeed mulling, uh, taking a shot at the candidacy for the Liberal Party. So, uh, your thoughts on, on possibly you know, facing an opponent like that? So I think, first of all, I welcome hearing who's going to enter the race, whether Liberals, NDP, or Green, in terms of officially getting their names in and, and making that decision. But, you know, certainly in terms of the Liberal Party, the biggest baggage of all is going to be the baggage of the current government's record. 
Yeah, uh, and that was my thought too, actually. I mean, last time they ran against the Harper government record and there was lots of other factors sort of there. Uh, this time it's going to be Trudeau running on his own record and that's going to present a strategic shift for him. Uh, do you think he's going to be able to sell himself after four years uh, as, as being the top guy? So I think certainly from my perspective, we can't afford another four years of this government. They have failed on so many fronts that I'm really, really concerned with what's going to happen, where we're going to go. So we're certainly going to work really hard in terms of both putting forward our vision, um, but making sure that they don't have another four years. And I mean, I could go on and on. You know, international relationships have never been this bad. You know, the fiscal situation is a challenge, and I think it's uh, getting worse. They're certainly spending money that they don't have, and, you know, Canadians are going to have to pay for it. Provincial relationships, worse they've been in a long time. So, you know, their record um, is, I think, a big concern. And I'd like to say about the Prime Minister, and I've said it a number of times, he's got a great bedside manner. So he's certainly someone that people like to talk to. But when it comes to actually being the surgeon doing your surgery, he's, he's not the guy. <laughs> That's a very interesting uh, example. Um, uh, back to Terry Lake. I mean, you've known Terry for a long time, obviously. Uh, worked with him as an MP when he was an MLA. Um, any thoughts about what he sort of brings to the table as far as how that changes the dynamic potentially for, for you when it comes to campaign time? You know, I think um, Terry's going to talk about what he brings to the table. What I need to talk about is what I bring to the table. And, and you know, certainly I'll be running both on my record, but more importantly on the vision that we're going to be putting forward over the next number of months. And on certainly, again, the liberal record, which to me, I mean, what's going to happen in Kamloops, Thompson, Caribou is people are going to have to decide what they think of that record. And, and you know, certainly um, people in rural communities... Uh, you know, the issues around things like, you know, guns um, and backdoor registries and handgun bans, those things resonate with them and they don't resonate in a positive way because they, they feel just targeted. These are, um, it's tools of their trade and they feel targeted in terms of what the government's doing. So really, um, you know, I welcome, obviously, people into the race. I, what I'm really hoping and I'm seeing... Um, Something, I felt it last in the last election campaign, and I'm hoping that whole online environment, that whole, you know, really um, sort of ugly world out there is really kind of troubling to me. And I think, um, you know, certainly what I'm hoping is we have lots of opportunity to run on, you know, what the policies are, because clearly they're very different. You know, how we need to tackle environmental challenges versus resource development, very different perspectives. But, you know, I'm fine. I'm very troubled by, um, you know, not the candidates, but an increasingly polarized and very sort of ugly um, online environment and otherwise yeah uh that's an interesting dynamic and it's one that i think has creeped its way north from from the united states and i would agree with you i, I mean i would i would ideally love to have a, a federal campaign both locally and, and and federally um you know be about issues and, and be about smart discourse and good sort of public debate but i i think i think i join you in sort of echoing that fear that we're going to see this kind of gross polarization and this really sort of awful behavior online is there I mean, you guys are sort of living in that limelight. I'm sure you take abuse on Twitter every day. What do we do about that? I mean, how do we raise the bar there? And not just on Twitter. I mean, some of the emails that come into the writing um, are just... Are 
anywhere are just incredibly, incredibly disturbing for for staff and, you know, what people feel they're willing to say. So, you know, I think we just need to set by example. We need to, um, as I've indicated, I'm very happy to run against, we cannot afford another four years of a, a Trudeau government. It's not the um, government of the Gretchen Martin days. It's it's very, very different in terms of, I mean, that government I could at least respect in terms of their fiscal approach. These guys just spend money like crazy. And it's interesting, the um, MP that crossed the floor, Leon Asilov, what she says is, I didn't leave the Liberal Party, the Liberal Party left me. And I think she speaks to a lot of um, people with that comment. Yeah. Uh, of course, the fiscal record, I mean, uh, balancing the books by 2040, I think uh, I, you don't have to be uh, any particular political favor or, or party to kind of have a little bit of a concern there, I assume. And, and really, what are we getting for that money? I think that's the, the bigger question. I mean, you haven't seen a lot of infrastructure that's actually rolled out uh, across this country. The infrastructure bank is, you know, a, a dismal failure so far. Um, this is an interesting thing. People talk about affordability. Um, as you might know, CMHC has to insure mortgages when the down payment is low. The federal government put $4.6 billion from CMHC. So this is people that can't afford a large down payment and that was siphoned into general revenue. So those are the sorts of things that I think um, need to be brought to the public's attention. Like how can we have, you know, young homeowners getting into the market, uh, having to pay extraordinarily high rates through CMHC and then just knowing that the government is taking that money and siphoning it and putting it into general revenue. Yeah, and on that note, Kathy, what uh, I'm sure that the building blocks are being put in place now for, for your party and, and sort of forming what the messaging will be in the coming campaign, but uh, any idea what sort of issue or issues will be the foundation for the Conservative Party, both maybe here locally and, and perhaps nationally? So, so I think there, um, obviously, we will be rolling out our thoughts over the next number of months. We still have a job as official opposition to hold the current government to account. But, you know, certainly, um, you know, for resource development, we've already put forward how we believe we could get the Trans Mountain Pipeline up and going as opposed to what this government's done in, with that approach. We've, we've put um, out that... The carbon tax, um, BC, I think, has the worst scenario for the carbon tax. We used to be somewhat proud. We were early on. When the NDP government took something that was revenue neutral and turned it into a cash grab, I mean, that should have concerned all British Columbians. So what we have in the rest of the country is we have a, a carbon tax in many other provinces. It's not going to be high enough to change behavior. You know, there might be a check that comes in this year, but we've seen how quickly a government can turn what is a revenue neutral or almost revenue neutral carbon tax into a cash grab. And, and certainly we know that it's not been set at a level that's effective enough. So certainly I think people are looking to see what our environmental uh, policy is going to be, but it's not going to be a, um, you know, a carbon tax grab. It's going to be something that will be focused on the reduction of emissions and it will be focused on other areas like you know helping these cities that are dumping raw sewage into our waterways so that's something that i think we need to really focus on as just one example 
<laughs> Message to Victoria. Uh, Kathy, you're just... And uh, the St. Lawrence. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just a, a, last, uh, a last question to you on the federal campaign. Uh, you guys are facing some um, as yet undefined pressure on your right with Maxine Bernier and the People's Party. Uh, is there a concern there that, that, that uh, you know, whether it's locally here or in other ridings across the country, that that could pose a, a vote-splitting problem and potentially kind of sewer you guys when it comes to the overall result or no? Well, I think what is clear that uh, a vote for the People's Party is a vote for Justin Trudeau. And I think in our riding, um, I think people, the Conservative Party typically aligns very nicely with what many in the People's Party are looking for. So I'll just leave it at that for now. Obviously, um, we're going to see the dynamics uh, sort of shift over the next number of months. Perfect stuff. Kathy, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking some time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's Conservative Member of Parliament for the Kamloops Thompson, Kathy McLeod. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show and return to Nanaimo on the other side with the candidate who came out on top, the NDP's Sheila Malcolmson, joining us. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford program. Overcast day here in Kamloops. All eyes in this province, uh, at least all of us who are politically inclined, uh, were watching Nanaimo last night as the race unfolded that could decide the fate of the John Horgan government. As we saw the NDP coming out on top with a, uh, with a sigh of relief. And the winning candidate joins us now, Sheila Malcolmson, now former MP, now an MLA. Good morning and welcome. Hi, Shane. <laughs> so how does it feel? Fantastic, great relief, and super grateful to all the volunteers and voters that pulled this off. Yeah. Uh, Sheila, you're obviously no stranger to politics, but uh, uh, it's always a bit of a throwing of the dice, a bit of a gamble uh, in politics in any election. Uh, but jumping from MP to MLA and having this by-election uh, was a risk at some degree. Uh, you know Nanaimo very well. Where, where were you on nerves going into the actual vote count last night? Were you fairly confident? Were you kind of jittery? Where, where were you there? We knew that we'd done our work. And even just on the election day itself, we had hundreds of folks out walking, knocking doors, making sure that our supporters got out to vote, giving rides to the polls. Uh, but we know by-elections are squirrely, so uh, this this was a risk. The stakes were so high, and I'm just so um, honored to have had all the support of voters and, and volunteers and, and really relieved that we're able to keep this um, good government going that's willing to invest in people here in Nanaimo. What did you hear on the doorstep? Uh, I know that, uh, you know, again, by-elections can be a very unique animal. Uh, was it was it, a, was it local issues? What were you hearing as you went door-to-door as far as what people were telling you? When I knocked on doors, people knew who I was and knew why I was there. So it, the awareness of the by-election and the stakes involved were really high. The issues we heard, the problems we heard about were health care and affordable housing. That, that was, you know, housing as, as number one. Rentals are super hard to find, really expensive. You know, Nanaimo, just even during the campaign, the numbers came out that it's in the top five unaffordable places in Canada, in the top 20 in the world. So, so we've got work to do. We've already started some of the work, but that, that, was, that was number one. 
where did the speculation tax rate in there? Uh, I get kind of mixed reviews on it. I get uh, that in Metro Vancouver, especially and probably to some degree Southern Vancouver Island, um, there's a frustration with the unaffordability of housing, um, speculation, perhaps for them, whatever the deal is. People are, are angry at housing slipping out of their grasp on a financial level. So I get that aspect of it. But I also think the speculation tax has drawn some ire, especially with how it's being collected. How are people receiving the speculation tax, as you heard on the doorstep? If we're talking to renters, which was the majority of our of our conversations on doorsteps, they were really relieved and thankful that we're using all the tools we've got for Nanaimo, especially where the housing crisis has hit us so hard. Homelessness crisis and affordability crisis. And so for this year, and this is a the speculation tax is a program that will be reviewed annually. For this year, we're going to use it and try it and see what results it generates. Um, it's, it's working in Vancouver and hasn't been controversial there. The, the folks that um, were concerned that it was going to affect them, you know, on the doorstep, we would reassure them that 99% of people are not going to pay the tax. If they have the privilege of owning multiple homes, all they need to do is rent them out part of the year to avoid paying the tax. So it's absolutely optional. Um, and that will give some relief, whether it's students at VIU or, or renters in the market, uh, to have us taxing empty homes might give that incentive to owners to, uh, to be willing to rent them out. To some degree, fair enough. Uh, and did you hear, I mean, my sense of it is, is there is some ire over the procedure of gathering the information. I think people are very eager to have uh, speculators crack down on. I don't think this tax exactly does that, but it's supposed to force empty homes onto the market. Fair enough, to some degree. Uh, but there's a lot of people now who are under this negative options billing where they're filling out information. I'm one of them. Uh, that just to say, hey, uh, I'm exempt from the tax. There's other ways to do it. And I, I wonder if, if there's going to be some problems for the government there as people kind of get irate about how it's being done. You know, what I heard from especially the younger folks in town is to fill out a form online that takes three and a half minutes. You know, it, that's not a barrier. Um, if we haven't got it right, it'll be part of the annual review. I've got the finance minister's assurance that that's something that's built in. And as the MLA, I'll advocate for changes if, if necessary. But we inherited a crisis from the BC Liberals not acting on money laundering, not acting on real estate speculation, not investing in homelessness and affordable housing in the way that our community needed. And so I'm not going to back away from using the tools available to, to make life easier for, for folks I mean, the, I, I just can't emphasize enough the, the bad conditions people are living in, how close to the line a lot of people in town are living because housing costs so much. And I'm not going to step away from, from, from looking after their interests. All right. Um, were you surprised by the performance or, or sort of lack thereof from the Green Party? I had a sense that Michelle Nay, I mean, the Greens, obviously, every party going in, obviously, is going to say, hey, we're in it to win it. Uh, but I think there was a sense from the Greens that they had locked down to some degree a star candidate, someone with a, a powerful local name, and that to some degree they were going to create some damage in the by-election result. That simply did not pan out. Did that catch you by surprise or no? You know, environment's my life's work, it's my education, it's the reason I'm in elected office, and I talked about that a lot on the campaign, and I and I use that as a big part of my work federally, so I think people in the riding were well aware. I'm here to defend the coast, whether it's abandoned vessels or oil spill prevention or, or stopping the expansion of oil tanker traffic, so I, I imagine that that had something to do with it, um, but as well, you know, I've heard from a lot of people how relieved they are to see the Greens and NDP working together and how much they want to see that 
cooperative relationship carry on. So I think the Greens can really, you know, take a compliment in the strength of the NDP vote as a endorsement for us continuing to work together. Um, I, from my local government elected days, I worked with both Sonia Firstenau and Adam Olson, Adam particularly on abandoned vessels. And so I look forward to as Vancouver Island MLAs uh, to working shoulder to shoulder on some of the big problems we face. Okay, by election hurdle over, Sheila, you're now an MLA. Uh, what happens now? Any expectation of getting into cabinet in the near future or sort of what's on your priority list? We've got a lot of work to do here at home uh, and working with the new council, with Mayor Krogh, uh, with the name of First Nation. We've got a lot of opportunity right here and, and we want to change the headlines for Nanaimo. We're ready for some good news and uh, and, and we're, we're ready to act in this next year ahead. We've got some great opportunities for investment, whether it's the Harbour to Harbour Ferry, whether it's affordable housing developments. Um, you know, we've got work to do. That's my real focus. I'm also really eager to, to move forward on the NDP's 2017 campaign commitment on abandoned vessel recycling, uh, dealing with fiberglass, maybe looking at the success of the cash for clunkers model of program that Washington and Oregon did. Those were all campaign commitments in 2017, and, and I'm really keen to roll up my sleeves and get to work on that. Any commitment from Mr. Horgan as far as uh, your role in his government? And uh, to go kind of go back to the question of uh, any, any idea of whether you'll get into cabinet in the near future or no? The Premier's invitation to me really strongly and, and reinforced by Leonard on his way out as MLA was the Democrats don't get a chance to implement a progressive agenda very often, uh, so not as often as we'd like. So I'm really eager to do the work of you know, knowing well how to be an opposition MP in the federal uh, parliament. I'm ready to get to work uh, implementing results and solutions for people here at home. That's, that's job one. All right. Uh, legislative sitting and budget is coming up. Uh, are you excited to get into the House and begin getting uh, sort of your head wrapped around uh, provincial politics as opposed to federal? I sure am. It's going to be uh, it's going to be really good challenge. Great to be there right at the beginning of the budget debate uh, because that's where the rubber hits the road. You know, this is a government that has been willing to prioritize spending on childcare, on education, on healthcare, and so I am eager to be in there advocating for Nanaimo and making sure that we carry on the good investments this government's been able to make here already. Well, there's not many by-elections where an entire province stops and watches what's going on with so much on the line. Uh, it must have been nerve-wracking, but congratulations on the win, and we'll see what exciting twists and turns uh, provincial politics has for us in the next days and weeks ahead. Oh, thanks for watching, Shane. <laughs> That's Sheila Malcolmson, the NDP uh, candidate, now NDP MLA in Nanaimo, after a fraught by-election where she ran away last night with the win. Uh, that's it for the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. We will be right back, uh, same time slot tomorrow. Of course, the program name changes. Inside Politics coming your way tomorrow. We'll, of course, analyze uh, the Nanaimo by-election and everything else of import on the political scene. And we're also going to hear from Terry Lake and try and kick him off that fence and see if he'll commit to running for federally. That and more on Inside Politics tomorrow. Where the interior stays connected. This is CHNL in Kamloops. A Stingray radio station. Radio NL 610 AM. Local News Now.